You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to March's JNNP podcast. This month, short-term surrogate outcomes for MS treatments. How good are they at predicting long-term disability? Douglas Goodin answers. There has been an assumption on the part of the MS community that these surrogates are, in fact, valid measures of function down the line. And I think that no one has actually looked in at least a quantitative way of whether there's a relationship between these outcome measures and the outcome measures that we're really interested in. We also return to the association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage. As Neshika Samarasakera talks us through her research examining the link. We didn't find an association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage in all locations combined. But we did find some association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage just in lobar locations. But before we get up to speed with those papers, here's a JNMP archive treat for you. Angela Vincent, Emeritus Professor at the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences, University of Oxford, has forged a high-profile career examining pathogenic mechanisms of autoantibodies to ion channels in neurological disorders, opening up diagnosis and treatment. Here she is talking to editor Matthew Kiernan about the early days of her research. So we're very pleased to have Angela Vincent, who's Emeritus Professor based at the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at University of Oxford. And Angela's also been recently elevated to a Fellow of the Royal Society. So firstly, Angela, we should say congratulations on your ascension. (laughs) Thank you very much. It was a a big surprise and um, quite remarkable honour and very exciting. Well, I think it's fantastic recognition of of all your work in, in clinical neurosciences. So we're just discussing your impact commentary for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry. And this goes back to a manuscript you wrote in 1985 with John Newsom Davis concerning acetylcholine receptor antibodies. Perhaps you could give us a bit of background as to how the study came about. Well, um, I'd been, in fact, working in University College in the 1970s with um, somebody called Ricardo Milady, who was working on the neuromuscular junction with Sir Bernard Katz, who I'm sure all of you remember, is the person who discovered miniature end plate potentials. And both he and Milady together subsequently discovered the basis of what we now call acetylcholine noise. And did you come across Bernard Katz? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, He was always there. He was a little aloof. He's quite a shy man. Just we were in terrible awe of him, actually. So it was a wonderful combination, Bernard Katz and Ricardo Milady. Um, Katz, so cerebral, so clever. Both clever, actually, but clever in totally different ways. And Ricardo, very relaxed, very friendly, totally unpretentious in any way. I was doing some fairly simple biochemistry on the acetylcholine receptors with Ricardo, and he wanted to work on my senior gravis. Um, because he remembered that there was some question as to what was actually going on at the neuromuscular junction in that disease. He, um, in fact, obtained an introduction to John Newsom Davis, and that started a collaboration, which, of course, has been the basis of my entire career since. 
So it was a very lucky time for me and a very exciting time because, of course, that was when the whole Myasthenia gravis disease suddenly burst open and people began to understand what was going on. John and I, um, he sent me the samples and I started doing the assays. And we took quite a while to write that first paper on the antibody assay because we wanted to really collect a lot of data and to describe it fully and to investigate the assay. And for those who may not be um, okay with the idea of an immunoprecipitation antibody assay, could you just give us a, a, a brief description and, and background to that? So really what you have to do is you have to get a source of the protein, which is, of course, muscle, and then you have to solubilize the acetylcholine receptors because, of course, normally they're very much within the membranes. And once you solubilize them, you have this really rather filthy soup. So the trick here was to use a toxin, bungarotoxin, which binds very specifically to acetylcholine receptors. And to use that toxin to make it radioactive, which is what I used to do, um, and then to add the toxin to the soup, and the toxin bound to the acetylcholine receptors very selectively. And then when you add the patient's antibodies, if they bind to the acetylcholine receptor, you can then immunoprecipitate the radioactively labeled acetylcholine receptors with a second antibody to the patient's IgG. It all sounds very complicated, but actually it works really rather simply and well within a few hours. In your commentary, you mentioned that there were a clear group of patients who didn't react to the seronegative patients, and what were your thoughts about them? Well, at the time, um, we were quite convinced by our data that there was a group who were completely seronegative. There were some patients who were negative at first, but then became positive if you waited a few months, so their antibodies were presumably just rising above the detection limit. There were other patients whose antibodies only really liked binding to proper neuromuscular junction acetylcholine receptor. And one of the problems that we faced initially was that when you took muscle, we tended to take it from patients who'd had ischemic legs being, and, and who were actually being amputated at the time, which was very common then. We literally had to go all over London to collect the amputated legs. Our first MRC PhD student needed lots of acetylcholine receptor to purify it, and he went all around London collecting these large parcels in black plastic bags and going on the tube and in buses with these bags. And, I mean, it's just amazing, really. Nowadays, you wouldn't dare do any of that. And that muscle was inevitably denervated to some extent. What happens in denervated muscle is that the acetylcholine receptors appear in larger numbers. But when that happens, it's not the same acetylcholine receptor as at the neuromuscular junction. It's a fetal form. We found that there were some patients who really, their antibodies only really reacted against the normal adult form. And therefore, we increased the amount of that receptor in our preparations by adding in some normal muscle acetylcholine receptor. As a result, we were able to increase the sensitivity a little bit more, and that was one further step in improving the assay. But at the end of the day, when you looked at the data, there were clearly patients who were completely negative and who sort of stood apart a little bit from the rest of the patients. 
a lot of them seemed to have rather more bulba involvement, and our impression was that they didn't improve when you gave when you did a thymectomy, even though they were the young onset females, the kind of patients who normally in myasthenia would have been quite good candidates for a thymectomy. So this made us think that there might be something else going on. And of course, one of the other possibilities was that there was another antigen. And as you know, eventually, after a lot of, lot of trying, we eventually found one. And you mentioned at the end of your um, commentary that the, really the concept of radioimmunoprecipitation has led to a number of breakthroughs in, in clinical neurology, which you've been at the forefront, and one in particular are the antibodies to voltage-gated potassium channels involved with limbic encephalitis or Morvan syndrome. Can you tell us a little bit how, how your original studies led to these later discoveries? Well, like so many things in my life, at least, it's um, good luck and um, individual patience, I think one can say. So we were working in the 1990s within this area, and we began to develop this antibody test for voltage-gated potassium channels, which were done in a very similar manner to the acetylcholine receptor antibody test, but in this case by taking brain tissue and we began to find antibodies to voltage-gated potassium channels in a proportion of patients with neuromyotonia and showed some evidence that they were pathogenic. So that was sort of trundling along. And then I came across a patient whose serum was sent to me from Italy. The patient had a syndrome which seemed to be really quite similar to fatal familial insomnia, the only thing that was different was that he had this muscle fasciculations and apparently physiologically neuromyotonia. So they sent the serum to us and it was extremely high for potassium channel antibodies. As a result of that, they plasma exchanged the patient and all his symptoms improved, including his central nervous system involvement, which was insomnia, confusion, disorientation. So this was, for me, a real breakthrough because it meant that this was a patient who had what appeared to be real brain involvement and yet had responded to plasma exchange and therefore that disease must have been caused by antibodies. And that really sort of then led on to the other findings in limbic encephalitis, which is, of course, much more common than that condition, which was, in fact, Morvan syndrome. Well, wonderful insights into your original studies, Angela. And, and anyone um, can download Angela's uh, impact commentary from the JNMP website. So thanks, Angela. Okay, thank you, Matthew. Angela's written about her 1985 paper as part of our new impact commentary series, now available on the website. Assessing the efficacy of MS treatments is not easy. Most have been trialled over only a few years and evaluated through short-term outcomes. But the relationship between these surrogates and long-term disability is unclear. How good are they as predictors? Douglas Goodin, who's a clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco, spoke to me about his JNMP paper looking at the question. I think that there have been, uh, in most MS clinical trials, uh, a reliance on certain short-term outcomes to measure the efficacy of our drugs. And in general, those have been divided into clinical outcomes uh, and into sort of imaging outcomes, uh, usually on MRI. 
So the clinical outcomes that people have looked at have been the relapse rate, the number of attacks that an individual has uh, in a year or in two years, and the amount of disability that they accumulate in that period of time. MR measures have varied but include the number of lesions that are visualized in the brain, the total volume of lesions that are visualized in the brain, and also the amount of atrophy or shrinkage of the brain that one can measure. And all of these short-term measures have been used to predict whether the drugs actually have uh, a benefit, hopefully in the long term, over 10, 15, or 20 years. Right. So would you say that the evidence base for a lot of MS treatments that we have at the moment is, is very reliant on, on these surrogates? Well, I think it is reliant on these surrogates. I think that uh, there has been an assumption on the part of the MS community that these surrogates are, in fact, valid measures of function down the line. And I think that no one has actually looked in at least a quantitative way of whether there's a relationship between these outcome measures and the outcome measures that we're really interested in, such as requiring a cane to walk, mortality, uh, requiring a wheelchair, converting to progressive MS, and so forth. Reading the paper, I was quite surprised that you said this was the first study that actually looked at the relationship. Is that simply because there's just been this assumption that the, the surrogates are quite reliable? Is it a methodological problem? What's going on there? I, I think that actually these studies are extremely difficult and arduous to conduct. To actually collect patients, uh, re-examine them, bring them back to the clinic after 16 years requires a tremendous effort. There have been some other long-term follow-up studies, but in general they have had low ascertainment. Our, we were able to bring back 70% to the clinic for an evaluation, whereas other studies have often found less than 50%. And when you don't have uh, high ascertainment, it's very hard to statistically uh, analyze the data. So could you give us a brief overview of your design and the, the data that you collected in terms of time and uh, assessment measures? We decided that we wanted to try and follow up our patients after 16 years we looked at what their disability was, we looked at when they'd converted to secondary progressive MS if they had, when they'd started to use a cane, when they'd started to use a wheelchair. We went back through their records and looked at which medications they'd been treated with over the years uh, and cataloged all of those variables. We also did MR scans on them at the 16-year mark, uh, so we repeated the spinal imaging and we did a cognitive assessment where we actually looked at their neuropsychological function. What were your results when you looked at these patients at baseline and then during the RCT and then 16 years later? What, what did you find were the most powerful predictors for, for long-term disability? Well, it, interestingly, the most powerful predictors that we had were uh, variables that were present at baseline, such as the disability score, the number of lesions that they had at baseline. These were relatively strong predictors of how people did 16 years down the line. But of course, the baseline variables are not the ones that you can change during the course of a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. When we actually looked at the changes in those variables that had occurred during the randomized trial, looking now at physical disability as an outcome, so converting to progressive MS, requiring a cane or requiring a wheelchair, 
the only variables that actually correlated were the clinical variables. So the change in disability over the course of the trial and the change in relapse rate. And these were only modestly uh, related. Overall, we were able to predict about half of the variability in long-term outcome, but the large majority of that was from the baseline variables, not from the on-study variables. With your findings that a lot of these short-term clinical and MRI-based outcomes didn't actually correlate very well with long-term disability, do you think this undermines the evidence for efficacy for many of the MS treatments that we have? Well, it certainly raises a question uh, of whether these long-term treatments impact uh, these functions. I think that there are ways of looking at this statistically where you can use various statistical methods to mitigate some of the biases that occur in long-term studies and actually get a more direct assessment of whether you've impacted long-term function. Uh, but I think the the real lesson from this is we have to have a lot more long-term data before we can be confident of what impact our therapies have. Are there any trials on the horizon? Obviously, there are several ways of designing trials. I think the optimum design is to follow up patients who participated in randomized clinical trials to begin with. And the reason for that is that the patients, you know the patient groups are balanced at baseline, and you know a lot of information about them both prior to their participation in the study and during the study. Uh, so you have a tremendous advantage over someone assembling a cohort of patients who haven't participated in a clinical trial. And what we need to do is follow up these long-term clinical trials in a more uh, sort of consistent manner. At the moment, it's been dependent upon the interest of the investigators and the sort of whims of the pharmaceutical company that sponsored the trial as to whether or not uh, the long-term follow-up is actually undertaken. And I think that companies uh, and investigators need to be uh, encouraged at the beginning when they're doing the randomized trial to include in that design a plan to do long-term follow-up. What outcomes would you like to see them measuring that could possibly give a better idea of long-term disability? Uh, I think you're somewhat limited in terms of the number of outcomes that you can look at. I mean, you're either going to look at clinical variables or MR variables or something else. I, I think that most patients and most physicians would not believe uh, the result of a trial unless it had some impact on the clinical status of the patients. Uh, and since those did correlate with long-term function, I think those will continue to be an important part of drug approval. But what I think really ought to be done is we ought to look at this to see which of the ways of measuring, say, disability should be used. For instance, at the moment, we use what's called a sustained one-point change on a particular scale called the Kurtzky scale. Uh, and it turned out that as a clinical measure of disability, that was actually the worst clinical measure and not the one that correlated best with long-term function. The measure that correlated best was the actual change over the entire trial on this, on this disability scale. And that's probably a better outcome than the one that is currently used. In terms of which MR measures, the imaging measures, the only one which actually correlated, and this was with cognitive function, was a measure of brain atrophy, and probably those are better measures than the number of T2 lesions or the number 
and volume uh, of the disease seen on the MR scan. Great. Well, hopefully we've got a, a few researchers out there listening. Well, Doug, thanks very much for, for coming on and sharing your insights. You're very welcome. And now, Neshika Samarasekera from the Division of Clinical Neurosciences, University of Edinburgh, on the link between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage. So, good morning, Neshika. Thanks very much for, for coming on. Morning. Your systematic review and meta-analysis in this month's JNMP has looked at this question of an association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage. You identified 10 studies which amounted to 481 cases with just over 3,200 controls. Um, So it gets to juicy stuff. What did you conclude? Did you find an association? We looked initially at the association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage in any location. And then we stratified by where the hemorrhage was, was deep, whether it was lover or whether it was cerebellar. And we didn't find an association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage in all locations combined. But we did find some association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage just in lobar locations. We also didn't find any association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and intracerebral hemorrhage in deep or cerebellar locations. And I guess that finding wasn't unexpected um, in the context of the previous research and previous observations of the association potentially between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and lobar intracerebral hemorrhage. With this link between angiopathy and lobar ICH, could you give us an idea of the strength of it? Yes. I mean, the actual odds ratio came out at about 2.2, and the lower margin of the 95% confidence intervals were just over one. I mean, I guess what that is saying is that there is an association between cerebral amyloid and angiopathy and lobar ICH, but something to consider is that it's not necessarily as strong an association as one would expect to find and certainly one wouldn't necessarily assume that you know the majority of labor ICH is due to CAA alone. You did write in the study that you think the association might be stronger than than you concluded. Could you tell me a bit more about that why you said that? Yes part of the reason why we said that was that the quality of the studies was very mixed. The findings and that that odds ratio of the association only actually relates to just over 100 lower ICH cases in the literature, um, which in the spectrum of things isn't actually that large a number. And the studies that we were able to include hadn't necessarily accounted for other factors which may affect the association um, between CAA and lower ICH. So age is one of the big ones. We know that CAA is much commoner as you get older, as is intracerebral hemorrhage, and also dementia, and that wasn't accounted for either. So had the studies accounted for these, perhaps the association might have been even stronger, but you know it's impossible to show that without having the quality of studies available. Could you, could you tell me a bit about the, the severity 
How severe was the, the CAA that was associated with, with low bar in just cerebral haemorrhage? I think it's very difficult to precisely answer that in that the way the studies rated CAA was so mixed between them. You know, a minority of the studies actually used a sort of standardised rating scale of which there's two or three available. More commonly, the studies actually use their own um, rating scales. In terms of trying to explore more about the association between CAA and ICH, something we would seek to do is be able to rate CAA using a standardised rating scale so that it could be replicated easily and also be able to, I think in terms of quantifying the relationship, be able to answer more about the association. So in particular, I guess from an epidemiological perspective, um, being able to think about, you know, is there a dose-response relationship? Sometimes we see people who just don't have one over ICH but have, you know, multiple recurring over ICHs. And we know that the recurrence rate in lower ICH is slightly higher than in other types of ICH. But are the people who have recurring ICHs the ones with much more florid CAA? We don't have the data available to answer that at the moment. Neshka, thanks very much. Good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Both Neshka and Douglas's papers are freely available on the website. For more on cerebral amyloid angiopathy, there's also a review on the disorder from February's JNMP up there, which UCL's David Waring spoke to me about in last month's podcast. That's everything for March. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.